Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The People's Republic of China is the only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do it. That is the assessment of the latest U.S. National Security Strategy document. This autumn marks the 10th anniversary of China's Belt and Road Initiative, perhaps the most potent expression of that global ambition and the cornerstone of Xi Jinping's legacy. So how is it going? Has it lived up to its lofty goals? Or is it in part responsible for China's economic woes? My guest today is the former chief economist at UBS, research associate at the China Centre of Oxford University and at the SOAS in London, and the author of several books, including Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy. Welcome back to the bunker, George Magnus. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Good to be back here again. Um, George, let's start with basics. Why is it called the Belt and Road Initiative, or One Belt, One Road, as the Chinese actually call it? What is the semiological meaning there? <laughs> Yes, it is quite confusing because actually the road actually is the maritime route from China, basically through the South China Sea into the Indian Ocean, um, the Arabian Sea, and and ultimately to the Mediterranean and beyond. And um, the belt actually is the the land routes really that go eastward and are kind of, if you look at the map of um the old Silk Road, as used to be in sort of medieval and even dynastic times in China that go back even further in history, you can see really how that kind of resonates with today's Belt and Road, you know. Mm, so mm. these were the old caravan trails. That That's its kind of um, its origin, really. Mm. And, and this is a sort of a, a 21st century recreation in a way. What were the initiatives stated aims at the outset in 2013? And were they genuine and fully stated, or were there unstated, unspun motives behind the scenes? Well, um, when Xi Jinping effectively launched the Belt and Road formally uh, in a speech in Kazakhstan in 2013, I think everybody understood at the time that it was his personal, or personalized, I should say, signature foreign policy. This is Mm. really an attempt by the PRC, People's Republic of China, to reach out to the rest of the world. Nowadays, probably would not include Europe in that, uh, I don't think. When you ask about planned and unplanned, it's kind of interesting because sometimes people thought that it was a very carefully planned and thought out uh, centralized project uh, from Beijing. It's really nothing of the sort, actually. It's, um, It's a sort of an extension of China's domestic economic model. So Hmm. in the the home economy in China, local governments, which are very important for delivering public goods, state enterprises at the local level, and banks combine really, and have combined over years, um, to create this huge infrastructure programs that everybody gets wowed by when they visit um, the People's Republic of China. And uh, the Belt and Road really is an extension of that model. There are lots and lots of agencies and entities involved, not just in Beijing, but also local governments, banks, um, state enterprises at the central level and also at the local level, and of course, sovereign governments who uh, receive loans 
in the main um, to buy or to finance infrastructure, most of which, you know, Chinese companies supply. So it's a bit more chaotic than I think people often think it to be. Um, and it has gone through some very interesting iterations over mm. these last mm. 10 years. So, so in a way, because China's economy is state-driven, this is the equivalent of um, foreign investment, basically, because there isn't entirely private business initiative to go out there and invest money in loads of countries. The Chinese state thought we might as well sort of coordinate it. Most of the money that has flowed, or most of the transactions that have flowed from China to countries in the Belt and Road universe are financial transactions, loans, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not direct investment. It's not like Chinese companies right. have taken equity stakes or built new um, factories in Zambia or in uh, Malaysia. I mean, mm. I'm not saying that it hasn't happened, but the lion's share of the transactions have been loans, which the recipient countries have then used uh, to effectively buy projects, mm. often supplied, of course, by Chinese um, suppliers. You see, that's fascinating because my narrow experience of it from Greece is actually of Chinese involvement in projects and, you know, they've bought several ports that they now operate and things like that. So that's not representative of the large swathe of it. The large swathe of it is mainly financial uh, loan. Yes, I mean, I'm sure you're referring to yes, and you know, and perhaps other places. That mm. certainly happened. That's absolutely true. But yes, the lion's share of it of of Belt and Road transactions have been loans. Would you say that ten years on the initiative has been a success, uh, not an unqualified success, but broadly a success measured against its own ambitions? Yes. Well, I suppose it depends, you know, which side of the transaction you're on. If you're one of what could be, you know, like two dozen or more countries that have run into very big financing problems in terms of debt servicing, you might have kind of a different view from other countries or other regions within countries, for example. Mm. Chinese money has basically financed public goods, infrastructure, power plants, high-speed rail, digital networks. Um, roads, highways, ports, for example. I mean, these are public goods that otherwise might not have been built. So yeah. it's a mixed record. Mm. That's very interesting. On on Africa Day this year, Foreign Minister King Gang said, uh, and I quote, when brothers are of one heart and one mind, they have the strength to break metal. That brotherly friendship between China and Africa has been tempered in struggle and tested by time. No force can break or sever this bond. Um, from what I'm hearing from you, there have been things that have tested this bond internally. There are countries which have become disillusioned with Belt and Road, who feel they, they gave too much away or that China got a better deal or has interfered too much. In other words... Who are the principal brothers, to use that, uh, um, to use King Gang's phrase, who have turned dissenters in a way? Well, again, it's a, it is horses for courses, and I think um, it's also true, as I said, that there are you know certainly a, a significant number of countries that have complained, if not or have cause to complain, not just about. Um, the financing terms and loans which maybe were opaque or the governance was not clear 
or that they ended up or signing up to agreements where you know Chinese lenders have actually acquired um, mm. physical stakes in facilities because of non-payment or or, or interest um, withheld, for example. But also, I mean, in Africa in particular, for example, there has been some speculation that people have been, or some countries have, have been quite opposed to the idea that the Chinese bring their own workers, their own laborers to factories or to mine in, in Africa. Um, and Africa isn't exactly short of labor. Yes. So it, it, it's a bit horses for courses. I would say the, the one thing that I think stands out really in 10 years of Belt and Road is how much it has changed if we look back from 2023 back to 2013, the peak in terms of Belt and Road financing was about 2016-17, when about mm, mm. $80 to $90 billion a year was being made available. Cumulatively, since 2013, about a trillion dollars of loans have been made. But in 2021, 2022, 2023, this lending has virtually dried up. Now, last time I had you in the bunker, uh, we talked about China's mounting burden of debt. Has that outlook improved or got worse? And how is it affecting Belt and Road investments? The outward movement of capital, including financial capital from China, has diminished very, very significantly. Mm. Now, originally, um, this was really because the government became very negative and opposed to what they called trivial finance. Uh, so this would be things like, you know, the purchase of football clubs or just things that weren't deemed to be economically cool. Nice to haves, as it were. Nice to haves, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's uh, it's gone beyond that now. And uh, in fact, there, there was some statistics recently released which showed that actually for the first time, the net inward flow of capital into China had actually reversed. Hmm. Some of that has to do with the fact that the banks are uh, facing much more difficult situations and circumstances at home, not least because of the the bust in real estate. Yep. Some of it is to do with the fact that the banks that have been doing a lot of the international lending have had their fingers burnt because the loans have gone bad. And so, you know, China has had to reschedule bilaterally. I mean, it, it doesn't really like operating in a group that we know as the Paris Club of mm, countries, mm. Um, which is multilateral debt rescheduling for poorer countries that get into difficulty. It prefers to deal bilaterally, and it has bilaterally renegotiated or restructured about $250 billion worth of debt over the last few years. So, um, this is a cost, ultimately, to the banks that actually made mm-hmm. loans. So those are the, um, the practical reasons forcing a scale back. Are there also philosophic reasons? You wrote last year, I think, that we went through a period where uh, markets were markets and business was business and everything else was basically secondary or tertiary to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, geopolitical considerations were secondary to making money effectively. And it was all about globalization, but we are now moving into an era of disengagement. So 
Is China philosophically in that group of countries that are looking a little bit more inwardly, or is it simply being forced by the practical difficulties it is having economically to scale back? I know that's a really hard one to disentangle, but I wonder what you're picking up in terms of vibes, I guess. No, well, the answer is easy because it's everything that you said, <laughs> and it's that complicated, really. There's no question that China itself is, I mean, we call it de-risking now, right? But um, whether you want to call it decoupling or de-risking, China has its own reasons to de-risk. It doesn't really want to be dependent Mm. on American, Western, European, Japanese, Korean, etc. technologies and supplies. It wants to do a lot of the, the modern technology itself. Now, whether it can or not is a different question, but it is trying, it, it preaches, as it were, and certainly is resolved to pursue a policy that it calls self-reliance, right. which is, you know, we want to do it ourselves. Yep. But in at the same time, I think its appetite to engage with what we would now call uh, the global south, which is really the sort of emerging and developing countries of Africa, Asia, and South America or Latin America, its appetite to do that is undiminished. Um, the Belt and Road is certainly still, even though its original intention was creating, you know, infrastructure loans and financing, mm. it still has a very important purpose politically and in international relations for China because it's the way in which China can reach out uh, or hopes to be able to stretch into the rest of the world. Mm. Its ideas of global governance and values, systems, protocols, um, the kinds of things that would make Chinese technology companies acceptable rather than, you know, Google and, um, you know, Microsoft and so on and so forth. So there's this kind of competition that's going on in the rest of the world between the standards and protocols of Chinese versus non-Chinese companies, Mm. which are quite different when it comes to data transfer, storage, manipulation and usage, and also what we call the Internet of Things, which is the devices that are implanted in white goods and motor vehicles and so on and so forth. Uh, So um, there there is this kind of separation going on. And and China certainly sees the Belt and Road as a potentially fertile ground, not just for its own companies to make progress, like Huawei, Tencent, Alibaba, and so on, but also a fertile ground to get countries to align with its own governance priorities and initiatives, including in the UN, by the way. Which actually uh, segues very nicely to uh, Xi's visit last week to the United States. Um, his first visit in over six years, his first face-to-face with Biden in a year, and arguably, I would say, the most wide-ranging agenda um, they've they've uh, engaged in. What is your read of that? Does it mean a beginning to return to slightly more normalized relations, or am I, am I being too optimistic? I think you're being too optimistic. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't want to be churlish about this because it's not insignificant or trivial that uh, seemingly the two leaders agreed to resume uh, military-to-military dialogue, which uh, obviously is quite important given the sensitivities over Taiwan. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, insignificant that they agreed to rubber stamp really the progress which their climate envoys have been making in terms of renewables, 
it's not trivial, certainly from an American point of view, that they should have agreed that the Chinese would clamp down on uh, the production of uh, fentanyl uh, precursor chemicals. Mind you, they did agree that with Trump in 2019 and never really enforced it. So obviously the follow-up will be quite important. But I think, uh, Alex, the, the main thing that I think is the takeaway from this meeting is that both leaders saw it as timely and necessary to stabilize what is their most important external relationship. Obviously, Biden's got test of his electors uh, or voters in a year's time. And um, I think uh, stabilizing the US-China relationship for Biden is, you know, at, a, at what is a, essentially quite a low level. I mean, they are not best yeah, buddies. Yeah. Uh, but stabilizing that relationship, I think, is probably expedient and, and timely. It certainly is from Xi Jinping's point of view as well, because his, obviously, Chinese economy is facing a lot of trouble at the moment. Difficulties, the real estate market, for example. Um, And so he also could do with uh, a bit of kind of light relief, so to speak. Um, But for the moment, it suits them both to uh, not have to worry about each other as much as they have been. Finally, um, I I couldn't let you go without discussing Cameron's recent reappointment to government in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Now, when, when the Belt and Road Initiative was first announced in 2013, that was round about the time when Cameron was hailing a sort of new golden era of UK-China relations. Uh, so that would have been, I guess, part of that outreach in many ways. Is his close involvement with China a weakness in the post of foreign secretary, or is it actually a strength to have someone that understands a little bit about how they work and has decent contacts in that direction? Well, I mean, the golden era, so-called, did not really cover itself in glory. Um, um, actually, I don't think you think it was Cameron's idea. I think it was more George Osborne. Yeah. Uh, but certainly Cameron was brought into it, obviously, as prime minister. Um But um, I think it was kind of, certainly in this country, it's kind of widely seen as being a bit naive, kind of an initiative that maybe was like 10 or 20 years Mm. late. Mm. And it may well be that, um, you know, we are still in this country without a a proper or properly kind of coherently defined China policy. Uh, You know, and there are certainly politicians that are viscerally, kind of opposed to almost any sort of China engagement, almost regardless of, of what it is, um, which is also kind of going to the other extreme. But I don't really know whether Cameron's appointment really will be... I mean, the Global Times was effusive in its praise for <laughs> uh, saying that now it would be an opportunity for, you know, UK-China relations to improve and to, I don't know, can't remember the exact language, but to, you know, ignore the silly voices that are trying to undermine it. Mm. Um, but I think that um, there's a limit to what we could really accomplish in terms of uh, UK-China relations. I mean, the trade relationship isn't that big, to be honest. I mean, China is our third or fourth biggest export partner, but it is so dwarfed by what we do with Europe and the United States that it, it really doesn't really make that difference anymore. The concerns over technology and the scrutiny over direct investment, which 
China has always looked very favorably at the UK for foreign direct investment, is not going to change because of the sensitivities of national security. And we do have national security documents that um, the government has published, um, you know, which actually set out quite clearly mm. our um, adversarial kind of concerns. So I don't know, it might help a bit of dialogue, but I don't think it's going to be a material uh, game changer, to be honest. George Magnus, thank you for your always fascinating insight. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, if you want more in-depth analysis like this, you can support us on the funding platform Patreon from as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You will get every podcast early with no ads. Nobody does what we do, so help us keep doing it. I leave you with the words of Bertrand Russell from his book The Problem of China, published over a 100 years ago. The Chinese nation is the most patient in the world. It thinks of centuries as other nations think of decades. It is essentially indestructible and can afford to wait. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandre. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Eliza Davis Beard and Liam Tate. The audio producer was Robin Leeburn. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.